0: the planes and then helicopters would come and just surveil everything just back and forth and going around in circles. The, The helicopters were devastating to the wildlife around here.
1: Yeah, bird life. Oh, it was terrible. It was a war. It was like a war zone here, man. I looked down the road and here comes, I could notice in the woods and they're all in camo and I could see the forest kind of bouncing. And it was two guys, one on either side of the road, carrying guns, all in camo and their faces painted, coming after me.
2: It starts with just taking that leap.
0: Man, you have to work hard, you have to be incredibly smart.
2: Choose something that even if, it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of. It. Doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your (laughs) gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. That was Karen and Tommy recalling the heydays of Humboldt County's marijuana plantations. A time when authorities stalked suspected growers and even shot those who got too troublesome. Building a weed business from scratch not only drew pressure from law enforcement, but also resulted in a slew of other challenges. First, there was the issue of cultivating acres and acres of land from scratch. Later, they'd have to navigate the fine print of a legalized market. Eventually, big corporations threatened to squeeze homesteaders out. Just as caring for your fields required strength and perseverance, so too did growing their operation. Perhaps that's why despite the scale and intensity of these challenges, Karen and Tommy are rooted to their land to this day. For this couple, we was never about making an easy buck, but a means for healing, community building, and understanding oneself. Their adventure begins, as many adventures in the 60s do, with the lighting of that first joint and a life-changing high. Could you tell me about like working in a nursery when you were 15?
1: Well, I worked at a place called Friendly Frost i just loved agriculture my whole family's been into agriculture well i was about 16 17 some friends came down from brown university and they were in a band they uh, brought some weed with them and i started to smoke that weed and it i just was uh, infatuated with it i just said this is just for me and i never stopped you know i smoke weed to this day
2: what what about it was interesting to you
1: it just opened up the doors of perception it opens up your mind's eye if you're paying attention it does
2: you also planted some seeds right where did you even go to plant those i
1: planted those seeds we used to drink beer underneath a bridge and i planted them there and remember there it rains in the summer so you didn't have to water anything and when i came back about three weeks later there it was
2: I'd actually like to uh, go to you, Karen, now, and talk about the first time maybe you you noticed Tommy.
0: Tommy and I went to the same high school, but we weren't at the same year, so I just kind of knew who he was, and he was always very pleasant, and uh, I was friends with his girlfriend, and so I saw, <laughs> I saw how nice he was, and then it was maybe four years later that we actually met again after high school. I had gone to... Uh, nursing school, and I'm an RN, but I had been in Manhattan for years. And then uh, we just reconnected on a a dance. We met, and then all of a sudden he disappeared. And then that's the part of the story where he was coming back up to pick me up to go to a party, and he never showed up. And I've gone, oh, I thought we were getting along really good. But it turns out that he got stopped by the police and arrested.
2: So tell me where you were when you got caught.
0: I was in a car
1: headed down south to pick Karen up. We were in a brand new Chevy convertible. I jumped in the back seat to take a nap because I was tired. I told him, just drive. We'll go get Karen and come back. I had fallen asleep. He pulled off the road and then the cops, seeing him in the car, thinking something was wrong, pulled over and uh, arrested us. For a joint in my pocket. And in those days, it started out with life imprisonment.
2: Life in prison for a joint in your pocket?
1: And originally, yes. It got pleaded down to 90 days.
2: Were you scared?
1: I was terrified. I was 18 years old, just 18 years
2: old. And here you are, like, they you know, you're just the... meeting Karen. You think yeah. everything is going to go great. And then yeah. it changes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Everything changed like that.
2: And so you, Karen, you just were radio silent. You're like, I yeah. guess maybe he's not interested anymore.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what I thought. I went, well, oh, no! Well, oh, well, I thought it was good. <laughs> but then when I found out what had happened, I called him and he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was working as a nurse at the time. And I said, well, I just have a job I don't love. He said, well, why don't you come back here? And I drove back from San Francisco to New York and We've been together ever since.
2: Tommy learned a number of important lessons in his youth that would shape the rest of his life. First, weed wasn't some exotic import, but a plant people could harvest in their own backyard, or in his case, under a bridge. But planting his own seeds and waiting for them to grow day by day made the fruit of his labor worth it. That first high was almost unforgettable. It was a rewarding sensation that eventually drove him towards farming. Second, for those who were willing to fully submit to the experience, smoking weed gave you more than a numbing high. It was a broadening of perspectives and a connection with himself that was so profound that it instilled in him a respect for the plant that he carries to this day. His last but most somber lesson was experiencing firsthand the discrimination towards weed and those who grew it. The people who arrested him were ignorant. They didn't even know what this plant was, and they had likely never even tried it. Yet here they were, asserting themselves as the authority over whether it was good or bad. As frightening as this experience was, it didn't discourage him from his beliefs, nor from starting his own plantation later down the road. And so what kind of life were you trying to build together?
0: Well, we finally, uh, you know, enjoyed each other's company enough to get married. We also were interested in art, you know, and so we went to Europe and looked all around and went to all the museums and stuff.
2: So you get married in 67, right? Yes. And then you decide to go to Europe to get inspired?
1: Well, we've we've moved to Portugal. We were thinking of a place to live more Mediterranean, a place where we could farm a little bit and grow food and just starting to get things put together in our brains about what to do.
2: And what did you guys find there? It was
1: absolutely beautiful. You know, the people were great. The food was great. It was impossible to learn the language. It was Portuguese. It
2: well, was, that made it like more like pretty tough. It was so
1: hard. I just, I couldn't get it. So we decided do we just hitchhike around and see Europe. And that's what we did.
2: And what do you think you, was like your biggest learning lesson from this like time period?
0: I think we understood more about the world and especially because we were hitchhiking. we would have just people pick us up and a lot of times they would buy us lunch. And even when we went to Brussels, the um, guys, it was late at night and it was dark, but uh, the train station had closed and we didn't want to just stay out on the street. So we put our thumbs out and this guy picked us up and took us to Brussels and we were very tired. And he, the next thing I know he's pulled up to a hotel and he said, this is a good place to stay. When we got back down to the place to the front desk in the morning, we went to pay and they said, oh, no, he paid for you. I think it gave us a closeness, a feeling of uh, old European ways, how hospitable they were and how open they were, even appreciative that Americans would be interested in their culture.
2: Yeah, that was beautiful. So what eventually drew you back to California? First,
0: we, we came back to New York. We realized that the art was too hard to accomplish in Europe, you know, because we weren't really set up for it. So that's when we came back and Tommy saw his old art teacher in and, and Marietta and she had a studio then. So she invited him to come and share the studio with her. And,
1: and uh, uh, I took a factory building and turned it into a home for Karen. It was all salvaged there, too. I just picked up. Everything on the streets from uh, nail kegs, they used to be made out of wood and uh, planks of wood that were in the ocean. I grabbed them along and pulled them in and made a beautiful table, a bathroom and a kitchen. And there was nobody there. It was down in Wall Street. That's down in the
0: Wall Street area.
1: And there was nobody living there at that time.
2: And so at what point did you want to then move again?
0: It was when um, we realized that he didn't want to go into the Vietnam War. I don't think wars are right. You can't go beat up on people. You know, it's just wrong. Well, they sent to him a, to a psychiatrist who wrote a letter saying that Tom is an artist and he's too sensitive to be in war. We had a backup plan where he got accepted to art school in Guadalajara. But then when the, he got deferred from the draft, we already had this in motion to go. So we went down there to Guadalajara. We were there for a while with some friends. and uh, sick
1: as a dog. <laughs> Uh, eating peyote with ice cream.
0: When the dysentery or whatever it was kicked in, I felt really bad. And then at that time, we looked at each other and says, well, remember how nice California is? (laughs) And so at that time, he hadn't even entered into the school. So we just got in the car and drove back up to California. Yeah.
2: So in California, where did you actually get settled?
0: Um, we came up to Northern California because we had been in Southern California before. And I said to Tommy, well, let's go look up there. And we came and found a place in Ukiah. And I worked in a hospital there. And uh, he grew a couple plants there.
2: <laughs> so that, this is kind of where the cultivation comes Yeah, All Right,
0: right. Vichy Springs
1: in Ukiah. It's a hot springs. And up the creeks there, you know, there's little hot spots and little wet spots. So it started to grow there, too.
2: If there's one word to summarize Karen and Tommy's early years together, it's spontaneous. Caught in the whirlwind of love, politics, and a zest for life, the couple couldn't seem to keep their suitcase shut. Just as weed broadened the horizons of their mind, so too did travel. As hitchhikers in Europe, the open road became their home. Strangers turned into friends and borders melted away as they experienced the continent, not as carved up pieces of land, but as one large neighborhood. Their New York house was also incredibly unconventional with tables made from scrap wood, nail kegs repurposed into chairs and walls meant to house machines, not people. Despite being a set in a factory, there's something oddly cozy about their second home. When you make something from scratch, it's special because you infuse it with time, energy and commitment. Things money can't buy. There's personality infused into the makeshift. The lack of permanence soon grows tiresome And I imagine their eyes drift away from the horizon, back towards familiar terrain. Karen and Tommy's desire for a community where they could plant themselves and their weed drove them to what would eventually become their home for the next 50 years.
0: But we left there when um, Reagan was governor and he closed all the mental institutions. All of a sudden, all the people were out on the street and the It was, it was tough. show. Yeah, it was awful. You Um, see
1: the results. That's all these homeless. Because every state follows suit. They close their mental institutions down and let those people out on the streets.
2: Because of basically what Reagan did, you were now out of work. And so what did you decide to do? Well, we
0: were renting at the time. And we decided that we wanted our own place. So we moved up to Portland, Oregon for a year. And we both worked. He worked in construction and I worked as a nurse in a hospital and we just saved all our money to uh, be able to buy some land and we actually even looked up in Canada but it was really cold and the growing season's real short there and so you know like we already had been to Northern California we thought let's just go back that way (laughs) yeah
2: and so where did you land in Northern California?
0: We landed in Bryceland. We had a friend who lived there and we stayed with him and their next door neighbor was a real estate agent. So we knew we wanted to buy land in this area. So every morning we he'd say, oh, let's go here and let's go there. And that's where we ended up here. And uh, we've just been here ever since. That was at the beginning of 1971.
2: So how many acres are you guys on? 40 plus acres
1: of land. That's that's a lot of land. That's an enormous amount of land, especially in a mountain, because it goes by the air, but you get mass as you get slopes. You get more and more
2: land. Oh, really? So it's even kind of more surface area. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So how much did you buy that for back then? (laughs)
0: $9,000. Our payments were $47 a month, and our taxes were $47 a year.
2: So you have this 40 acres, what was there? Nothing,
1: there was nothing here, yeah. there was no road. There wasn't even a road? No, we w- walked for the first year, pretty much we walked from the right to here behind the house. We got a little road put in and walked down the hill.
2: Do you have like a car that you were using? Uh, uh, like-
0: we had a truck, but we'd have to leave it at the top because it was more just a trail down here. And so we'd bring down uh, all our groceries in a wheelbarrow uh, we had one battery and we'd wheelbarrow it back up and then when we went to town the guy we knew at the gas station would put the battery on the chargers and so we would do all our shopping and come back and then we'd have electricity for a week
2: when you start to grow like weed here
0: that would have been 1972 in 1971 i was pregnant with our first child we went to a town called Branscombe, bought a house for a hundred dollars that we would demolish. So we spent the summer going down there, taking the house apart and taking the nails up, filling the truck up and coming back home and staying a couple of days.
2: Wait, so you bought uh, another house to take apart to build this house? Yes. yes.
0: Wow. It took us all summer to dismantle it because it, it was just the two of us. Amount
1: of wood.
2: And were you like growing anything at the same time?
0: Oh yeah, we have vegetable
1: garden out here, all tomatoes,
2: everything. Just for your own.
1: Yeah, for our
0: just own for our own. And the for same our own with news. the cannabis. It's just he smoked, and I didn't even yeah. smoke at the time. But I knew it was something that we were on the course to provide for ourselves. So. We found a little place off the creek where we could put a couple plants in bucket water and out bucket to it.
1: water to
2: it and just and start It was the it goal growing. just like self-sufficiency.
1: Yes. Yes, and we were, we've were becoming more and more self-sufficient.
2: Why was that important?
1: You can see it coming. What's happening right now? You can see it coming. The, the back to the earth movement, you know, we were kind of a little before that, but you could see it coming. You can't cover the whole earth with concrete and expect something good to come out of it, man.
2: Escaping controversy, settling down, and self-sufficiency were the couple's most important goals when they arrived in Humboldt. And for a while, it seemed that they had checked off each of these priorities. They had their own land, grew their own food, and had even built a house with their own hands. Now, all that was missing was a couple of those life-changing plants they'd fallen in love with in their youth. Weed. Unfortunately, the key making Karen and Tommy's dream come true was also responsible for many of the obstacles they would face. With the war on drugs gathering traction, it became more and more dangerous to use weed, much less grow it and sell it off your own land. As pressure from law enforcement ramped up, their hope of nourishing a community centered on weed's healing and perception-altering powers began to wilt. Was there a point where like, we'd kind of came to the forefront even more, where it was like you were trying to grow your operation to something that would provide for your family even
0: more? We got interested when we heard about all the medicinal properties. And we started breeding stuff and we eventually kind of specialized in CBD because we thought that was the main medicinal. What year was that? That was probably the early nineties.
2: When was the first time you felt pressure uh, for growing weed?
0: I think we always felt a little pressure because we were not sure. We always felt we were doing the right thing, but you just never knew. And then really our focus for a lot of the time was on the vegetables because we were successful. We even started a company you know, to to sell all that stuff. And so it kind of just, it all mingled together. It wasn't like everything was separate. And with the weed, people started coming in and growing really big. So we just made sure we were growing the very smallest that nobody was interested in.
1: Highest quality, highest quality you can get. So we went more for quality. We just kept going. We just, it all, like she says, it all co-mingled. It all kind of just kept going.
2: Tommy said earlier, like, you guys were one of the first people or the first people growing yeah. weed yeah. in Humboldt. Yeah. And that's like, that is no small feat, right? I want to maybe understand the first signs of, of pressure that that you heard in the community and I forgot his name, Who the person who was shot in the back. Dirk Dirksen. Dirk Dirksen. What year is that?
0: 72.
2: So maybe we start there.
1: Well, he was, they thought he was at a meth lab there at his place, and the federal marshal came in with helicopters, and when he came out the door, he ran, and they shot him in the back. I mean, and they didn't find any lab or anything, so. And I believe the officer... Uh, Nothing happened to him at all.
2: Did that worry like you or any of your family like that? Yeah. You know, because like people with, I mean, you guys knew you were growing weed, and like maybe some of your family have understood. Parents'
1: folks would were really worried. Yeah. You know, because they were afraid I would get shot. <laughs> because I would wave my gun at them when they flew airplanes over. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I just stood out on the front porch and waved my gun at them, you know, my rifle, you know, to go away. You got the right to keep him. He didn't arms. have it
0: pointed. He was oh, just no. holding yeah. it up, I you, held it up you know, just to say, you know, go stay away. away. I'm yeah.
1: here,
2: go away. Uh, what were those planes searching for?
1: They were looking for weed. You know, it was a small community, so they knew I was growing weed here. And one year... Uh, one of my dear friends was here and we dug it all up.
2: <laughs> all the weed out. All
1: the weed. We had a garden and we dug it, you know, maybe a hundred plants up. We dug a hundred plants up and hit them in the forest and camoed them in the forest. So when they came by, nothing. They didn't get a damn thing.
2: So you're you have your own growing operation. It's you're you're defending it from all of these people coming in. So I, I would I would love to also like you know center on a couple other stories like this. Um, one of the ones that I remember you talking about is uh, the horses being chased.
0: Well, every year around the harvest time, the the planes or then helicopters would come and just surveil everything, just back and forth and going around in circles, and they, they got down really low to our place and scared our horse so much that <laughs> he ran up the road, and they liked watching that, and so then they chased him down, and they chased him up and down the road so many times that he was blowing blood out of his lungs, and there was no way we could stop it or anything, and we've had other instances where deer got so rattled they just ran into the fence and broke their neck. The, the helicopters were devastating to the wildlife around here.
2: Tommy was no stranger to the discrimination smoking marijuana brought you. 90 days in jail for owning a single joint had made it plenty clear that even owning a smidge of the substance could land you in trouble. Just imagine what horrors the community of Humboldt had endured not only for using it, but for cultivating it. In the air, helicopters roared over private land, throwing both wild and domesticated animals into fearful frenzies that often ended in injuries. Meanwhile, on the ground, police invaded homes without warrants, damaged large swaths of property, and even threatened citizens by pressing guns to their heads. There seems to be a parallel between Tommy's arrest and the attack on Humboldt. In both cases, there's a lack of understanding between the authorities and the people. Whereas the authorities viewed weed as a menace to social order and public health, People like Tommy and Karen viewed it as the cornerstone of Humboldt's social and physical well-being. It's kind of ironic that a plant that was literally used to open one's mind was being persecuted by those with such a narrow outlook of its potential. If there was so much trauma from like all the shit they were pulling, why did you keep going?
0: This is our home. We live here, and our interest. We yeah. we believed in the cannabis yeah. as a healing plant, so we wanted to learn all about it. I mean, even after all these years, there's still so much to learn. Yeah. You know that, yeah. and and it always felt valuable.
2: Yeah, and it felt like you were protecting something sacred. Yes, we felt yes. like we were protecting sacred protecting
0: earth. the legacy. And then when uh, Doug Fur came back with the seeds, and we had these we got into genetic, uh, you know, crossing different things with the old Mexican weed and it was just really interesting. And w- we always felt it was a healthful option for people.
2: Um, I also want to understand, uh, about your relationship with, with Mexico. Cause my understanding that that uh, that you guys knew a cartel guy quote unquote
0: no, no, we didn't know him at all. It's just that somebody who did know him came in and got seeds from us.
2: Yeah. So can we, can we, can you tell me about that story?
0: Well, we had a friend who um, came and said he needed some seeds and we said, well, okay, here we go. You know, and we gave him to him. He said, well, what are you doing? He said he was going to Mexico to grow. And we thought, oh, that's crazy. And then, and then we didn't even see him for a year. And he came back and said, well, I had the experience of a lifetime down there. And we went, oh my goodness, what happened? And he said that he had gotten approached by a cartel person and that, uh, he was growing for him and everything was going good because the cartel guy was paying off the authorities. Everything was going good until it wasn't. And they were getting raided and he was able to get out just, uh, Just barely, and he got in a truck and drove it to the river and got on and stole a boat or borrowed it, you know, just to get the other side of the river. And then his dad, his his brother was a pilot, and he called him up and said, "Come get me." (laughs) And so his brother came and picked him up and uh, got him out of there. But the but he said there was so much uh, gunfire and everything, he had no idea how many people were killed in that raid. But they, he said they, they were always all walking around with guns all over the place. He said it's totally different than growing here where everybody's peaceful, you know, and there is no there is no thing like that. It just- Why do you
2: think the, that that culture is so different with um, or like the culture of growing weed is different here than in Mexico? And I, I imagine there are some pretty obvious answers, but I would love to hear what, what your thoughts on that.
1: I would think it's just the people. They're just the people. That
2: Who are involved. Yeah, the people right. involved. I mean, if you have the cartel involved, it's going to be much more violent than yes. if you guys are just like homesteaders living off the
0: land. Yes, we were just homesteaders. You and know, we're so. pretty
1: much, you know, well-educated people. And down there, a lot of the cartel people are not well-educated and they just get suckered in.
2: So you are... Like I mean, surviving through the the 80s. And then um, how does your your operation change uh, in like the 90s and thousands? And and what are you noticing about Humboldt that's changing as, uh, you know, like marijuana becomes more prevalent in the community?
0: Well, the laws were always changing, and we tried to just stay within acceptable stuff. Wasn't when it was allowed to have medicinal, that's when we started concentrating on the CBD. As time went on, and it did become more legal, then we formed into a regular business. But there's always been a lot of people who just never wanted to be legal. We were happy for the opportunity to be open about it because we do believe in it. We don't want to hide it. We want to promote it because we feel it's an option that could help uh, people get off of other drugs that are bad for them.
1: Heroin addiction and all this new drug, you know, that they could uh, have success. People who are manic depressants and from seizures to you name it, it really works. But you have to find the right percents for each person. And everybody's body's different. But
0: the way the legal situation came, they made it very difficult for people to get legal. So oh, 80% of the weed that's grown is still on the traditional old market, you know, uh, and then there's only a very few people who became legal. And we're some of the only people of our generation who went for it. And then the next generation is the legacy farmers where they kept on with the growing. And then after that, it became almost uh, just people were real commercial about it. It wasn't about the health and wellness that was our focus.
2: You might have heard the term medical marijuana before, but what does that actually mean? In the 1980s, Karen and Tommy shifted to producing CBD. As Karen and Tommy shifted away from THC products and regular growing operations, they began focusing on community impact. With weed regulation loosened, it was easier to grow now than ever. Young farmers swarmed the county looking to plant cash crops. It seemed the only option for Humboldt growers to compete was upscaling their operation at the cost of quality. But instead, Karen and Tommy chose to buck the trend. As homesteaders who'd built their own house and who'd been caring for their land for decades, they didn't view their crops in terms of dollar signs. To them, weed was a medium that healed, awakened their minds, and changed the way people saw the world for the better. It didn't just generate income. It created culture and connection. It was a lifestyle. But until others shared this perspective, life on the farm would remain tough. And so you do have that focus. And going into the thousands or 2000, maybe like 2010. Are you still focusing on, on CBD? And then what are you noticing again about Humboldt as we're going towards like 2016?
0: We had specialized in CBD for years and we got genetic uh, one uh, plants that were 20% CBD, no THC. We thought, all right, we've got it. And we couldn't find anybody that wanted it. The next thing we hear, yeah, they say, well, we want some THC in it. Something about, they always say CBD, but when it comes to interest in it, it's really, it's just not there. And so now as times have changed, people are realizing that it isn't the THC or CBD that's responsible. It's the entourage effect, they say, with different phenomes and different terpenes and all these other factors that people don't even know about. They're just now studying them.
2: So in 2016, there's some pretty big legislation that comes through. Can you tell me about your views on that legislation, when it was going through in 2016, and then the effects after?
1: I wasn't for it. The the, uh, legalization you're talking, right? I wasn't for it, and I'm still hesitant about it. But you got to have it. You got to be reasonable. It's a business, so you got to have it. I don't know. You know?
0: when we When we first heard about it, we were skeptical, and then we started thinking, well, it would be a way for us to sh- to say what we do and not have to hide anything and to progress in a legal market. But the problem was is the when they told everybody about the proposition, they said that there would be a one acre cap on it that would give the small farmers at least five years to develop their farms and to figure out how to, you know, manage an illegal business. And then at the last minute when that uh, bill came through, somebody forgot to put that clause in and everybody say, oh, well, that was by design that the people that are in authority figures wanted their other, you know, high money people to be able to just go in it right away and for some reason at the last minute that clause was omitted and people are still angry to this day.
2: What does the omission the of that clause mean for
0: corporations? Formers? Corporations could take it over and they could squelch all of us because we have we don't have the access to all the things that they do you know and we're small farms we can barely even hire other people we have to just kind of scale down to what we can personally do ourselves but they can hire people and they can take a loss for years the fact that they didn't have the proper legislation at the time like they said that everybody was thinking they voted on it's only after the vote was taken and everybody's reading and go well where's that one acre cap it wasn't there The one acre
2: clause was missing. After all that discussion and collaboration, I can't imagine what the citizens of Humboldt were feeling. Disappointment, betrayal. Here was a potential solution for stability, a way to ensure that farmers did not have to hide their livelihood. Instead, Prop 64 gave large corporations unchecked liberty to snap up land and cultivate on a scale that smaller farmers simply couldn't compete against. Can understand Karen and Tommy's anger, but I also admire their resilience. Despite these setbacks, they chose to stay. After all, Humboldt is their home. Its future is their future, and it's going to take a lot more than a few cash-grabbing corporations to uproot this pair of farmers. So, what does that mean like like what what are you thinking about the future of like cannabis in Humboldt is and like where where is your place in that?
1: Well, well, I'm hoping to be one of the small people left, just like you got Gallo wines and you got little wineries down there, down south, family wineries that have been going for 100, 150 years. They're still there, you know, and you get quality. You get the best quality, you know, and I think that's what's going to happen. There's going to be less and less people in the weed industry, and if they don't just change the rules, I mean, they just cheated everybody. They literally just cheated everybody, and they don't seem to care.
0: The adversity that we face to become legal has kind of brought the county together. And we feel that our niche in the the market is to grow the best because you just can't grow the best if you're having acres and acres. Right. And we feel like we've got the small farm advantage where we love the, our land and we love the plant and we want to help promote it in a really healthy way. And it's, it's still not for profit. It's not just all about the money that it is. And th- we see that that is what differentiates us from the the large corporate growers is they're just in it for the profit.
2: Yeah. And so what do, what would you hope like changes about the industry? If you were to like wave a magic wand, what do you, what what would you want changed?
1: Well, the volume of weed that they're allowed to grow, it should be no more than one acre that we all voted on. And that's what we voted on. And so they just lied and cheated. They the magic wand. Put it back the way it should be. Stop selling land to, for people to grow weed on. You can only have so many weed fulums, You they can't have. They could stop
0: taking applications, j- just hold a moratorium, a moratorium there was for now. There's already enough weed mm-hmm. on
1: the market for all the weed that's already being grown. Yet they're still selling land to grow weed on and making a profit and and they don't care. They just, the counties and government just want money from you. That's all. They don't care what about anything.
2: And with that, like, I mean, you, you, you the homesteaders, you, you guys are the people that kind of created Humboldt. Do you think the, the city that you've created still has your back?
1: No. No. Uh-uh. No. I think they want to have our back, but they put themselves in a position where they don't. They don't. They opened up the door to all the other counties to just cheat and lie about everything. There's no outlet for our product. There's no place we can sell it. Maybe they should make a mandatory place that the government buys our product from us. You know, I mean, here, we got this product, now buy it from us so we can stay in business. And I don't know. You know something's got to happen. But I know you can't just keep selling land and have more people grow weed and many of the young kids just think that's what they want to do. And they just, they're just, they have no idea what they're doing, but they're still in fantasy land. You know,
2: what do you think is the most important thing to understand about weed?
1: I think it's a sacred herb. And then when you play around with it, you know, it'll bite you. It'll bite you in the end, you know, learn how to use weed. Don't let weed use you. That's that's what you have to do because it's a great work. It's a great herb. It's fantastic herb. It Can solve a lot of problems in the world. It really can.
0: I just wanted to mention that we're a family farm, and that our son and our daughter have helped us get to where we are. And it wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to without their support, mentally and actually intellectually. Because uh, it just feels like something that was right for us to do since since we have accumulated knowledge over all these years. And
1: we're on our third generation in the business.
2: Our
0: grandson's in it now. Wow.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) You're really continuing the culture. Yes. Wow. Three generations running in Humboldt. That's incredible. One of the most fascinating things about Karen and Tommy's story is that despite bouncing around the globe from Europe to Mexico to back to the States, in the end... They ended up taking root in the unassuming county of Humboldt, California. The challenges they endured over the next several decades as they fought to keep their home, reflect their dedication to the land, as well as their love for the sacred herb. From violent surveillance, to pressure to upscale their operation, to the betrayal of Prop 64, Karen and Tommy battled adversity every step of the way, yet remained true to their convictions. Like a plant that bends under the wind but doesn't break, they adapt to their circumstances through resourceful thinking. To hinder police surveillance, they cut down trees to block the roads. After learning about weed's healing properties, they shifted to producing CBD. You might be wondering, where does their resilience come from? Perhaps it's from the easygoing California climate or the steady relationship they'd built over the years. Or maybe it's from the philosophy they embraced while smoking their first joint. Span your mind, see what we find. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Cannon, Sophia Donner,
0: David Saide,
2: Ashley Jimenez.
0: Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan,
1: Harushi Kanauchi,
0: Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie
2: Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Tiffany Dang, Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.